Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Oh man, hey, welcome to Bergen Park Church. We're glad you are here this morning. It is great uh, to see if you want to grab a Bible. We're in the book of Nehemiah right now. Now we're in chapter four, and I know for some of you eight types, that's going to bother you because we didn't go through chapter three. And we love you, but I can't read chapter three. Have you tried to read chapter three? Yes, you do not want to see a dyslexic read chapter three up front. Chapter three is essentially a list of names. Now we're going to talk about chapter three, so uh, if, if you're wondering what it's about, we'll let you out, we'll let you know, but we're going to be in chapter four, so I hope that's okay. Chapter four, Nehemiah chapter four, we're going to pick it up in verse uh, one to verse 14. The word of the Lord. Now when Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. He jeered at the Jews and said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? I mean, will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of a heap of rubbish and burn ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite beside him said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break it down, break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, let not their sins be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And so we built a wall, and all the walls that joined together of half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that we were repairing the walls of Jerusalem and was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set guards at its protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we cannot, we're not able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and the open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords and spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, as we gather this morning, we, we just pause and want to acknowledge that you're with us. Regardless of how we walk in here, Father, I, I love that you reveal yourself in the darkest of times. Whether it's in the rebellion of your own people, whether it's in our despair, whether it's in our brokenness, 
Father, you love to show light in darkness. And the darkness doesn't overcome it. And so in Jesus' name, we invite the light of your presence, the light of your power, the light of your word. And Lord, we just admit that we need you. That we don't really have a discipline problem as much, Father, as we have a desperation problem. We don't see ourselves as you see us so that we are not filled with your presence the way you want to fill us. So, Father, fill us. Speak to us, guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's interesting. God shows up and he reveals himself in the darkest of times. I was reading this week through the book of Exodus and I noticed the moment where God revealed his name to his people. Now, you would think that God would reveal his name, right, when all the plagues came. Shock and awe. It's not when it happened. You think God would reveal his name right when the seas are split? I mean, that's a good time to show up. Here's my name. Didn't happen. I mean, you would think God would reveal his name after all of those challenges, after he gave the law. It's not when he reveals his name. Do you realize the moment that God reveals his name was the moment of Israel's deepest sin? Does that surprise you? Surprise you, the moment that God shows up is not in moments of victory, but instead God reveals his name, he reveals his presence to his people in the moments of deepest discouragement. When they realize not the sins of the world, but when they realize their own weakness and failures, God loves to show up because we know what we need. Now, we see that same kind of story in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in a time, as I'm reading through this, of deep discouragement and desperation. And I think we live in a culture that loves to criticize. I mean, criticism is a way of life, a skill set you don't have to learn. You just have to listen. Think about the conversations maybe you've heard over the last week, maybe the words that come out of your mouth, maybe what you hear on the news. How much is criticism a part of our life? Even though we hold a lot in common with other people, even people we strongly disagree with, we don't focus on what we agree around. We focus on what we disagree. And criticism, tearing people down, making fun of people for just saying something a little off, right? Because we disagree with them. Now, everything else they said we may have agreed with, doesn't matter, but they said that one phrase wrong. And we love to tear people down. I mean, have you felt that? Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at home. It's growing up. That someone tore you down to the place you just, you felt worthless. And what Nehemiah, if you've experienced that, what Nehemiah helps us with is how do we deal with discouragement? And I'll be the first to tell you I'm not very good at it. It may surprise you, may not surprise you, but I'm not very good at dealing with discouragement because I don't see it when it's coming. I don't know if you feel that way, but when discouragement hits me, I'm like, I'm not discouraged. There's no way I'm discouraged, right? I'm a pastor. I got this. I know the word of God. I've memorized it. I got it. We do not like to admit, at least I don't, when things are impacting us or when they're hitting us or when they're hurting us. And because of that, we don't know how to use the resources of God to encourage us. And so in this story, what we see is how do we deal with discouragement? Now, before we jump into it, we need to remind ourselves of what the book of Nehemiah is about. 
It's often known, certainly in vacation Bible school, right? We talk about building the walls, and a lot of it's known for building walls. But it's really about building people. And the book of Nehemiah is the last book in the Old Testament. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, I'm not in the last book of the Old Testament. That's because the New Testament's not chronological. If it was chronological, Nehemiah would be it before Matthew, before Mark, Luke, John, before 400 years of silence, before Jesus shows up. This is the last voice that you hear in the Old Testament. Before Jesus comes and restores his people, Nehemiah is called out of this dark time in Israel's history. Because see, Israel had rebelled against God. And God warned them, listen, when you rebel against me and you worship the gods of the nations, I'm going to allow you to be turned over to the nations of the world. And so the Assyrians come in and they wipe them out, the Babylonians, the Persians, and now Israel's in exile. The promises of God seem like they're vacant, and the people of God have rebelled against them to the point that they're worshiping the ways of the world. But they're still trying to accomplish the things of God. That's what's interesting in the book of Nehemiah and really in Israel's history. They still try to accomplish the things of God, but they try to use the resources of the world. In some ways, that mirrors what we experience today. I want to bring about the results of God, but I don't want to use the resources of God. And Israel is primed for this. You know when, when an army would gather against Israel and the priests would go out, you know what he'd do? He'd kind of look at the army and say, hey, anybody just get married? Okay, you guys can go home. Anyone not feeling good today? Why don't you guys go home? Anyone just work out and you feel a little weak? You guys can go home. Anyone need a little time off? Why don't you guys go home? Okay, who's left? We got about 50 people here. Great. Let's go and face these people because our God is great enough. God is often leading his people to a place of recognizing their need and dependency on him. And so here's Nehemiah, and he's in this time where no one's trusting God, and God has put this huge burden on his heart Because he hears the city of Jerusalem's in destruction and the walls are torn down. And more than that, the people are rebelling against God. And so God puts this desire in Nehemiah's heart and he puts him next to the most powerful man at that time on the earth, which was the king of Persia. And he goes to the king of Persia and says, hey, listen, I need all this stuff to rebuild the walls. And because the grace of God was on Nehemiah, the king said yes. And Nehemiah now travels 800 miles from where he was staying to Jerusalem, and he begins to rebuild the walls. And as soon as he starts taking on this step of faith, and as he gathers other people, right, it's hard to rally. It's hard to move people towards a cause when the cause seems impossible. The walls are torn down. The city's a mess. It's a dangerous place to live. Hey, families, why don't you come and minister with me? And all these people start coming, right, and they start rebuilding the walls. But as soon as they have this act of faith, criticism begins to set in. Opposition begins to set in. Discouragement begins to set in. And we find Nehemiah in this place where he's rallied people and they've all said yes. But the question is, how are they going to persevere? And how are they going to push through? Because see, God uses our little acts of faithfulness to accomplish his purposes. And what's interesting as we move into chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 is every single chapter has to deal with opposition. You know, when you look at the survey, the book of Nehemiah, there's a lot about prayer in the book of Nehemiah. It's about 11 verses. There's a lot about planning in the book of Nehemiah. Eight verses are centered on planning. But you realize four chapters are focused on opposition. Four chapters. Because see, more than we need gifts 
God wants to give us grit. Because as we move out into the world in faith, you're going to find that your faith is going to be opposed. And we need that sense of perseverance to overcome the challenges that we face. And again, Nehemiah is going to show us how to overcome those challenges with faith. I want to share a couple quotes with you. First is from John D. Rockefeller. And he said this, talking about perseverance, I do not think there is any other quality so essential to success of any kind as to the quality of perseverance. It overcomes almost everything, even nature. Lou Holtz, a great college coach, said this, you aren't going to find anybody who's going to be successful without making sacrifice and without perseverance. Resiliency, determination, where does it come from? You think about it, willpower alone is a finite resource. If you try to live on willpower, you're going to be exhausted. Because you may have willpower for the afternoon, but what are you going to do when discouragement comes in the evening? Willpower is not enough. Nehemiah shows us what we need to overcome discouragement. So we're going to divide this passage up into two parts if you want to bring that outline up. The first part, verses 1 through 4, we're going to look at uh, ungodly opposition. And then following that, in verses 4 through 20, we're going to look at holy resistance. So let's start off in verse 1 and ungodly opposition. Nehemiah has this great vision, and yet he's being opposed. So watch this, verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. So he hears about the faith of Nehemiah. He sees what the people of God are doing, and this man is enraged. And he begins to jeer and attack what Nehemiah is doing. Now, the first thing he does is he attacks the workers themselves. In verse 2, watch this. And he said in the presence of his brothers and to the army of Samaria, which is kind of gathered against Nehemiah and the people who are doing this work, what are these feeble Jews doing? Listen, Nehemiah, look at the people that are around you. They're not the best, not the prettiest, not the strongest. They are feeble. He goes on and he says, will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Nehemiah, you got the wrong people. And he begins to look at the people around him, right? Because that discouragement, that attack comes in. He starts looking around. And he starts thinking, well, maybe I got the wrong people. They're not the strongest. They're not the smartest. They're not the greatest. They begin to attack the workers. And then second, they start attacking the work. Again, if you'll keep verse 2 up there, it says, will they finish it up in a day? Nehemiah, the task that you're after, you're not going to accomplish it until your enemies come and attack you. Because see, what's going to happen is the enemies of the Israelites, as they start rebuilding, your enemies get afraid. As you get stronger, they get weaker. And to the north, the Arabs and the Ammonites all around them, they start watching the city of Jerusalem get rebuilt. Hey, if you guys get rebuilt, you're going to start taking resources for yourself. That means there's less for us. Nehemiah, are you really going to accomplish this in time? As the armies start gathering against you, as people start hearing what you're doing, do you think you're going to overcome? He starts attacking the work itself. He attacks the workers. And then look, look at this, verse 2. He starts attacking the resources. 
Look at what you have. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough abilities. Will they revive the stones out of a heap of rubbish, the burned ones at that? What he's using is all the rubble that's around Jerusalem. He's using what is broken down, what is burnt, what is old, what is worn out. He's using those resources to rebuild the city. So imagine you're Nehemiah. You start hearing these accusations, and the people around you are hearing these accusations as well. Hey, we're not strong enough. We're not good enough. Look at what we've done. Have we done anything? We don't even have the right resources. Have you been in that kind of place of discouragement? I'm not enough. You're not enough. We're not enough. We don't have enough. We're not good enough. And even look at what we've done. Did we really accomplish much? Those voices start to settle in. And then they begin to attack the results. This guy, Tobiah, and I think of Tobiah as a little, a little chihuahua. I don't know why. Sam Ballot's like a pit bull. And then you always have that little punk that's next to the bully. It's not stronger than the bully, but he just has to go, yeah, yeah. That's Tobiah, anyways. Because he says that. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it'll break down the stone wall. You guys are a joke. Look at the results of what you have. Now, if you allowed that to settle in your soul, how would you feel? You're not enough. We're not enough. What you have is not enough. What you've done is not enough. You start feeling it. It's discouragement, despair. Because see, Sam Ballot knows if he can break your spirit, he can stop what God wants to do through you. The enemy knows if he can break your spirit, that's all he needs to do. Because you're going to start seeing things through the picture of despair. And despair loves to talk. And for some of you, despair loves to live in your mind. And you love to echo the words of despair. And despair kind of settles down. For some of you, I know this is true for me. And I start looking at what I have. And I start looking at who I am. And then when I start thinking about all the mistakes that I've made, those kind of come on, you know, in, in vivid description. You remember how you failed and where you failed. And then somebody says something negative, you know, and maybe they said about eight things positive and you fixate on the one thing negative because despair and discouragement is just flooding your mind and your heart. See, if the enemy can discourage your spirit... He can keep God working through you. And one of the questions we have to ask, and one of the questions I have to ask when I feel discouraged is, who are you listening to? Because sometimes that voice, it sounds like it's coming from you, but Jesus says you have an accuser. And so often we take on the voice of the accuser. And then he accuses you for taking on his voice. That's the giftedness of our enemy. He sits there and he accuses you. Look at what you got. Look at what you're doing. It's nothing. It's nothing. And you start going, look at what I got. Look at what I'm doing. You got no faith. Because if he can discourage your spirit, he can keep you, keep God from doing the work through you, even though God longs to work through you. And so that's what Sam Ballot's doing. And because it doesn't seem to work as well, what happens in verse 7 is he escalates from, physical, from verbal threats to physical threats. 
Watch this in verse 7. And when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdods, the Ashdodites, and basically what he's describing is a picture of all the people that are around the city of Jerusalem, the ones that do not want to see the walls rebuilt. When they heard, because again, this is causing fear in the community, Israel is growing, they're getting stronger. When they heard, they're repairing the walls of Jerusalem. And it was going forward, and the breaches begin to be closed, so our verbal threats aren't working. It hasn't worked. They were angry. Really, what that is is rage. It's fear. You know, when fear settles in your heart, it comes out as anger. It's really not anger. It's just, I need to get control over this situation. And if you want to get control over the situation, all the people around you are going to feel isolated. And that's where they are. This community is saying, we got to get control over this. And watch verse 8. And they all plotted together to come against and to fight Jerusalem and to, con- and to cause confusion in it. Discouragement is increasing. And what begins to happen is this discouragement, it starts affecting the attitude of the workers. It begins to settle in, because see, in verse 10, you start seeing it, it's, it's starting to become effective. Because see, now these voices aren't coming from the people around them. If you look in verse 10, you see how it starts off in Judah. Now, Judah is the community where the walls are being rebuilt. Where Nehemiah is sacrificing and he's taking his family and his family's families and friends and relatives. Hey, let's all move to this city that's ruined. Let's leave a place of comfort. And that takes enough faith of its own to leave a place of comfort and go serve someplace and sacrifice. And hey, we're going to go there. We're not going to have a house. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be difficult. But listen, God's put this great vision. We have this holy ambition. Now we've got holy initiative. We're moving out into the world in faith and trust. And the very people that you're serving over time, begin to hate you. That's what's happening in Judah. We're here to rebuild your walls, guys. We don't want you. Because see, as they start rebuilding the walls, all of these neighboring towns and villages, they start seeing what's going on, and they start putting greater pressure on the people of Judah. And so now this discouragement's not external. It's internal. It's one thing to deal with discouragement that comes from the world, It's another thing to deal with discouragement when it comes up through the body of faith. And that's what's beginning to happen. The voice of discouragement, it's settling in. And so watch what they say. These are the workers. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden, it's failing. We're not strong enough. We're not good enough. We can't accomplish this. And he goes on. Not only is their their strength beginning to fail, but by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Their vision is failing. And then their enemies, because they're hearing this, they're like, great, it's working. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and it said to them, notice, 10 times. Come and join us. What they're saying is stop the work. Stop the work. Stop the work. External pressure, discouragement. Internal pressure, give up. Have you ever felt that? And maybe you felt that in your faith. Why am I not growing the way that I thought? 
Why does it seem the promises of God are coming through? Why does it seem like God's power, his goodness is enough? It's not working, God. I can't tell you how many times, like in an act of faith, you push into obedience and trust, you push into health, and things get more difficult. You know, you start getting honest with your own sin and your own struggles and your own discouragement and your own difficulties, and it just seems like everything else is coming against you. And that's where the city of Jerusalem is. It's starting to get rebuilt. Listen, by the end of this chapter, though we didn't read the whole thing, they're halfway there. Is the glass half full? Is it half empty? Depends on which voice you're listening to. And because we live in a culture of discouragement, I think we are discipled in an attitude of discouragement. And part of that is we have to start evaluating what we do to ourselves and, and the very words that we speak. Are we speaking words of faith? Or are we stopping and asking the question, you know, where is this voice coming from? And sometimes you know what you need to do? You need to just ask the Father. Hey, Dad, is this from you? I mean, have you ever decided, kind of parented your kids and they're going through a hard time? And they're saying things to you, right? Hey, listen, Dad, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. Listen, I don't know where that voice is coming from, but that's not what I see. I know your weaknesses. I think you're beautiful. I think you are amazing. And yeah, hey, are you not as good as this, at this and this? Okay, sure. Yeah, you're looking at some of the strongest and the smartest people, the tallest people, and okay, you're not as good as them. But listen, that's not where your value comes from. And sometimes we just have to stop and ask, where is this voice coming from? And sometimes you need to just write it down. Write down the voice of accusation. You know why? Because if you don't acknowledge it, you can't overcome it. If you don't acknowledge it, you're not going to overcome it. And go to the Father. Father, where is this coming from? What do you want me to do with this? They're overwhelmed by the discouragement. Because see, in chapter 2, Chapter 2, verse 18, they're saying, hey, let's rise up and build. But by chapter 4, they're saying, guys, we got to stop. We can't do this anymore. So how should we respond when discouragement sets in? I'm going to show you three things. This is going to be a point of application. What Nehemiah does is when that discouragement comes, those taunts, that opposition, he turns angst into prayer. He takes the frustrations, the hurts. Listen, he is as honest as he can possibly be in the presence of God. And he turns those taunts into prayer. So watch this. Go back into verse 4. As these accusations come, he's honest about the way that people see him. Verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Listen, God, this is where we are. This is the truth. We are despised by the people around us. Now then he begins to get really angry. What happens in in verse 4 is you see his pain and his hurt coming out. And often what scripture is teaching you is not what to pray. It's teaching you how to pray. Because what he prays is wrong. How he prays is right. How does he pray? Honestly. God, this is what I want. Crush them. Kill them. Destroy them. They're called the imprecatory psalms. You read these in the psalms, and you're like, why is this here? This is disgusting. Crush their heads. Destroy them. Burn their towns and their villages. Because that's what you feel. 
And let me share something with you. If you don't do it in God's presence, you're going to do it in the presence of the people that are hurting you. And you're going to see this in the story of Nehemiah. In chapter 2, he receives criticism. And he responds to that criticism by saying, listen, the hand of God is with us. Thanks for your comments. Now, by chapter 4, he's not there. His confidence isn't there, right? It's overwhelming him because he's hearing it from every single side. And then he takes those taunts and he goes to God in prayer so that in chapter 6, when Sam Ballot shows up and they have a conversation, he's not saying, listen, Sam Ballot, if you repented, I hope God would send you to hell. That's, that's verse 5, if you want to know. He doesn't do that to others because he's brought his pain into God's presence. And if you're honest with God, then you're not going to take your pain and your hurt out on the people around you. So let's jump back into that. Notice how he prays. Verse 4, turn their back turn their back on their taunts, uh, turn their taunts on their own head and give them up to be plundered in the land that they are captive. So whatever bad stuff's happened to us, God, just let it happen to them. And then notice verse five. Don't cover their guilt. Do not let their sins be blotted out from your sight for they provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Listen, if they repent, don't forgive them. Isn't that great? If they are humble, they don't deserve it. I deserve it. Because, see, I'm nothing like them, right? That's how we talk. I mean, I haven't done the kind of stuff that they have done, God. These are really bad people. You remember what Jesus did on the cross? See, what what Nehemiah wants is a form of justice. Jesus, when he went to the cross, he looked out at the people who were mocking him, ridiculing, despising, and he said, Father, crush them. Go get them. If they ask for forgiveness, don't give it to them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the love of God. The love of God for us, because see, in our discouragement, we often rebel as well. And the stuff that you see in others, you start seeing yourself, right? They're ridiculing you. Okay, I'll ridicule you back. How do you overcome evil? By giving evil right back and doing it better than everyone else. They got a bully. I'm going to get a bigger bully, and he's going to be tougher, and he's going to be uglier, and I'm going to get a couple of Tobias around. That's what we do. That's human nature. How did Jesus overcome evil? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You will not overcome evil with evil. You'll only overcome evil with good. See, what we need to do is in those times of discouragement, the real us needs to meet the real God. And that's prayer. Prayer is not about getting what you ask for. It's about intimacy with the Father. And it's when the real you, here's what I want, here's what I need, here's what I see, meets the real God. And we turn those taunts into prayer. That's the first thing that we see from Nehemiah. And listen, that's hard. And for some of you, it's so hard because you need community to do that with. Some of you can do that well by yourself, but most of us can't. Because most of us can't look at you and, hey, listen, you're discouraged. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. And some of us need honesty in God's presence, but then we need honesty in community so people can come around and, listen, I want to pray for you. 
Because see, God's looking at your heart. He's like, listen, Jason, I know what you're saying. Sometimes we want to be good in God's presence instead of honest. And we're saying to God what, what we think we want, he wants to hear. And he's like, listen, Jason, I see into your heart. I know what you want. Just tell me. But God, what I want is selfish. Listen, will you just bring it to me? Because if you don't bring it to me, you're going to bring it to the world. It's going to get satisfied somewhere. I'd rather you bring your junk to me, just like God revealed his name when it was after the golden calf. Do you realize after God did all that amazing stuff, do you know when he shows up and says, you know who I am? I am who I am. It was the moment of their greatest weakness. When you come to God, even with your sin and your brokenness, and say, God, I'm in desperation and I need you, he shows up and he reveals himself. That's what Nehemiah needs. First thing he does is he turns that angst into prayer. Second is he clings to the promises of God. Watch this in verse 14. And I looked around and arose and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, hey, guys, everybody that's doing the work, do not be afraid of them. Why? Because I can tell you're afraid. You're scared. Instead, guys, let's, instead of going to fear, let's remember the Lord. And notice he says, the Lord who is great and is awesome, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He reminds them of the greatness of God. And I think when it says God is awesome and great, what he's reminding them of is the story of how God has delivered the people of Israel throughout their history. Because really what the Bible is a record of how God showed up. Now, it's a revelation of who he is, but it's how God showed up in the lives of a specific community of people. And see, those stories were written down to remind them of what God had done to get them to where they are. So they could kind of look back in those days of discouragement and say, listen, God has been with us. And one of the challenges I think we have in our modern context is we don't record the faithfulness of God. We don't write it down. You know, when we moved to Evergreen, and we were going through the interview process, one of the things I looked at was how in the world are we ever going to buy a house? We came from Texas. Houses are not as expensive in Texas, if you didn't know. They're quite cheap in comparison. And even back five years ago when we got here, we are like, this is impossible, God. There's no way. And one of the confirmations that God gave us is he opened a home to us. And in the negotiations with this man who's not a Christian, but this family wanted to sell their house to us. Why? The grace of God was on us, just like Nehemiah. And he moved this man's heart, and through some amazing negotiations, which I would never thought had worked, we bought this house. And there are things like that in our lives, right? And God shows up, and he reminds us of, our, of his faithfulness, but we don't record it. These are prophetic events. And, you know, in my office. I have a folder. If you've ever written me an encouraging note, it's there. Because when the discouraging notes come, I got to take that puppy out. I don't care if it's six years ago. And that person could be writing the discouraging notes today. I got to read that. And I got to be reminded of prophetic words, prophetic experiences. This is who you are. This is what God's done. And even in my own sinfulness, I got to go read that. Because it's not about me, it's about him. 
And see, if I don't bring his, my discouragement to him, that spirit of discouragement will stop God working through me. And I gotta be reminded of who he is, and I gotta be reminded of his promises. And you see this throughout scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse six, David was discouraged. He took his army out to battle, and what happened is as they were off in battle, this army came in, took their children and their wives away. His men are now angry at David. They're turning against him. So 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse six, and David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, the ones that he's leading. And because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters, because they were taken away, David's discouraged, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. He learned how to talk to his soul. Have you ever read those Psalms? David's saying, why so anxious, O my soul? Why so disturbed? Isn't it strange? You know what he's doing? It's called self-talk. Just like discouragement is self-talk, you have to do self-talk when it comes to strengthening yourself in the Lord. And some of us, we need to grab hold of a Psalm. The Lord is my light in my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my foes and my enemies attack, even then will I be confident. He goes on to say, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Father, I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek you in your temple. For in the day of trouble, you're going to keep me safe. You're going to keep me safe. You have to have a place where you can speak to your own soul. That's why scripture's there, which means we got to get scripture in. And there may be a psalm in this season that God wants to use. That's Psalm 27, in case you're like, that's a good one. I want that one. That's Psalm 27. You need something to anchor you. Because the world's going to throw discouragement at you. You're going to grab hold of it. You're going to take ownership. You've got an oppressor, an accuser that wants to throw discouragement at you. You've got to take words of a discouragement, which means you've got to be honest in God's presence. And you'll see it in the Psalms. God, I am discouraged. I'm angry. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? And then you've got to start talking to your soul. Hey, soul, what are you listening to? What are you anxious about? So what does he do? He turns angst into prayer. He reminds himself of the goodness and the promises of God. And then finally, he encourages the community not to fight against each other. He says, fight for each other. Watch this, verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Now fight for your brothers and for your sons and your daughters and your wives. Take care of the people around you because when you're discouraged, you take it out on the people around you. Can we be honest? Maybe that's only in my home and in my life. That's what I do because I don't want to be honest. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to admit I need you. And realize when he's saying fight, often we go to this very offensive place. Oh, he's gonna, they're going to go out there and attack all of these enemies. That's not what happens. What you see in the rest of the chapter is they're defending themselves against attack. And they're protecting themselves and they gather in little family groups as you kind of finish chapter four and they're gathering together and saying, hey, listen, some of you protect, some of you work. But the idea is they're supporting one another. They're coming together. They're bringing their discouragements. They're bringing their hurts, their pain. They're speaking truth into each other's lives. Church, 
you know, we can't do this well unless we do it together. And, and what that means is to be faithful in the little things. We need your help. As a church, we can't do this well unless we do it. We need your help. Whether that's serving simply in the children's area. I mean, it's a small thing. It's a small ask. But when we step out in encouragement and in faith, it encourages the people around us. It could be simply serving in our kitchen ministry. It could be stepping out. Because see, in that place of service, you build relationships. It could be stepping onto the prayer team. It could be getting here early and helping us get things together. It could be simply praying over your pastor because he's so worried and anxious about standing in front of people in the morning. If we don't do it together, if we don't do it together, what happens is a few people rise up like Nehemiah and they try to carry it out on their own. And the discouragement gets too great and they get overwhelmed and they start listening to those voices we need a community that is doing it and walking in it together, which doesn't mean perfection, it means commitment. Because as we saw, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was committed. That on the cross, he didn't bring judgment down and condemnation down on us. Instead, when he saw us in our own discouragement, when we mocked him, he said, Father, forgive them. And it's as we run to his love and his encouragement and his promises, and as we do it together in honesty, because see, your humility leads me to greater faith. When you say, I need him, I need him in my marriage, I need him in my life, I need him in my addictions and my struggles, that encourages us to say, I need him too. And as we do that together, God does something through our faithfulness in community that we could not do on our own. But we need you. And so one of the things I'd ask you today is, where could you step up and support? Because we're trying to build walls, not, not walls to keep people out, but walls of faith to bring people in, to love, to serve, and we need your help. And so as we celebrate communion this morning, maybe that's one step you could take. One simple act of obedience to say, hey God, how can I press into this community? Because it's not enough for those of us that are in service or those of us that are committed in leadership to do it, but we need to do it together. And so as we grab those elements, on the one hand, maybe you need to reveal your discouragement to God. After the service, there's gonna be folks up front that wanna pray for you. And if you're discouraged, just come forward and admit it and say, listen, I'm discouraged. I feel overwhelmed. I don't feel like God is with me. I feel like I'm ready to give up. I don't feel like my life's gonna change. Just be honest. And the prayer offered in faith, it makes the sick person well. It restores us and encourages us. So bring your honesty, bring your brokenness this morning. And if you haven't had a chance to grab those elements, let's grab them and spend a little time in prayer. We're going to share the communion elements and then please come forward to receive prayer.
Why so discouraged, O oh my soul? Why so? Why so much despair within you? So put your hope in God. I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He broke it, he gave thanks, and he said, take and eat, for this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us receive it together. And after supper, he took a cup. So this cup, it represents the new covenant, the relationship established through his blood. Let us receive it together. 